Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by, less, by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chain. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has a stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we exalt your name for you are good and your love endures forever. And we praise you, Father God, for the way that you are moving around the world. Lord God, right now, this morning, I just think of some of our dear friends and, and part of the Grace family that you called out this summer, God, to take the gospel elsewhere. Lord, we lift up Aaron and Christy, and we lift up Dan and Brenda Moss. Lord God, we pray, Father, as you've taken them each to two new churches, Lord, to to pastor and to serve. Lord God, we pray that you would bless their ministry there. 
We pray, Father God, that you'd give, uh, incline the hearts of those congregations towards them, that they would love and support them and uh, give thanks for them. We pray, Father God, that you'd give them love for those congregations and for those people. Pray, God, that you'd bless them with wisdom and insight to lead those churches well. We pray that you'd bless them with power in their preaching, God, that as they preach, your gospel would go forth and your word would take root in heart after heart and lives would be changed and transformed. Father, we pray that you'd give them great joy in their labor. We pray that you'd give them great energy as they should manage the difficulty of, of moving, Father, um, and, and getting settled in a new home and getting accustomed to a new community, God. Just give them energy, give them grace. And Father, we pray that as they each spend their first Christmas with those new churches, God, that they would lay a, a good foundation of new memories and they would experience a new season of fruitfulness in their lives and in their ministries. And Lord, we pray for us. We pray that you'd be moving in our lives, Father, in this Advent season, that indeed you would fill us with hope because of the power of the gospel and the wonder of your work, Lord. From your birth to your life to your death and your resurrection, may we be a people marked by hope. In Christ's mighty name, amen. Well, you know, the Christmas season... I think often feels like it is a fight between two opposing forces or sentiments as we personally wrestle through who the victor in our hearts and our minds is going to be. Is it going to be hope or is it going to be regret? I think for many of us, we wrestle through hope and regret almost every Advent season. And the incredible thing is that they are connected connected. So you might have regret over the past. You know, as you're there and you're putting the tree up another time and you're thinking about traditions another time, you have regret about what was or about what may have been but was not. You have regret about that previous Christmas party where the words of someone else wounded yourself or someone you love. You, you have memories of that time that you couldn't even make it all the way through the meal and you had to leave. Or you have regret that you didn't leave when you think you should have. You regret that you weren't able to celebrate Christmas perhaps with the ones you really wanted to because of life circumstance. You regret what you perceive to simply be the waste of time that you've spent year after year. Heck, maybe you just regret that there wasn't more snow to go sledding in, that it wasn't a good day to go skiing. We sit there alone in the living room at night, focusing on the lights of the tree, struggling with regret over our actions or our words or our desires, wondering if we will ever be free from regret. And that's where the fight for hope comes in. Because the deepest kind of hope rises amidst a morass of fear, pain, and uncertainty. The hope that strengthens us in our bones and causes us to walk forward where others retreat is a hope that looks straight in the eye of regret and is not overwhelmed. 
The hope that allows us to encourage others with the deep truths of the faith and the constancy of God's character does not arise in hearts that have never been troubled, but in hearts that have had hope overpower regret by the grace of God. Some have called hope the most powerful force in the universe. And this morning we see God try to root his people in a hope that will overpower any sense of regret that they might have. If you remember, if you were with us last week, we saw how Isaiah 39, uh, in Isaiah 39, God promises that because of his people's sin, they will be thrown out of the land. He's going to cast them out. He's going to consign them to captivity. They're going to be taken away from their homes and from the land of promise, and they're going to go to a faraway country where they're going to live in captivity and bondage. And, but then he doesn't get too far from issuing that promised judgment when then Isaiah 40 rolls in, and you, if you were with us, you saw he promises comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people. Before he's, they've even experienced the judgment, he is reminding them that all has, will not be lost, that he will not abandon them forever, that he has not turned his back on them forever. He would come and bring them home and comfort them with his mighty and loving hand. As we go through Isaiah 40, as it continues this morning, with an anticipation of regret, God's people are sure to be feeling as they sit there in captivity. Regret maybe for what they've done, regret maybe for how it all came to what it now was, and a wonder, is this promise going to be fulfilled? He's promised to, to come and to seek them out. He's promised that the mountains will fall down and the valleys will be raised up and the way will be made straight for him to come and bring them to his chest and lead them home. But is it going to happen? Do they have hope, the hope of faith in that promise? John Oswald writes, quote, It is into this setting, just like ours, that Isaiah speaks by inspiration. He speaks to people who have lost hope. The impossible has happened. They were sure their nation could not fall, that their temple could not be destroyed. And that their God would not let them down. Yet all that has happened. Whatever the future might hold, it would be one of regret. I mean, you see this play out in the book of Jeremiah. They are convinced they will never be thrown from their country. They are convinced that no matter what they do, no matter how unfaithful they are, that they will always dwell in the land, no matter how many gods they worship in addition to the one true God, they will never be bereft of the land or the promise. For, for, for the one Jeremiah we have proclaiming, no, judgment is coming, there are a hundred anti-Jeremiahs proclaiming, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. God is giving his people hope in the place of regret through a display of his glory 
He will exalt those who trust in him. That's the message of this text. God is giving his people hope in the place of regret. We see this come out really at the center of the text. I think verse 27 is where we see the emotion pour out from the part of the people of Israel. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? It's the heart condition that the people living in exile have. They feel abandoned. They don't perceive the presence of God in their lives. They, he's just given them this promise, but they're, they're sitting there full of doubt and uncertainty, feeling like he doesn't even see them. He doesn't notice them. You ever walk into a room and feel like, I can't believe that person never said hi to me. I feel like they didn't notice me. It's like I didn't exist. They feel like they don't exist in the eye of the Lord. They feel like there is this lack of justice on his part. He has disregarded their rights. It's not a heart of hope. It's not a heart of an abiding faith. Interestingly, it's not a heart that is accepting any personal responsibility either for what they or their forebears have done. It doesn't even seem like it's a heart of contrition, actually. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, before we judge the Israelites too strong, would we admit that there may have been a time, there may be many times, there may be a time right now where we have looked at what was going on in our lives and we've said, God, I don't see you. God, this isn't right. God, you have abandoned me. God, where are you? I feel like you've walked away. God, you are not working good, right, true justice on my behalf. This is wrong. Where is your promise? I do not see it fulfilled in my life. A lot of ways. Verse 27 is the mark of so many of us at one point or another in our lives. Why has my cause been disregarded by my God? The temptation in suffering is always to doubt God's goodness, God's power, God's wisdom, and God's presence with us. Always. And their inability to respond to God's promise with hope and faith is what makes God's continued work in their lives more amazing. I mean, you read verse 27 and you think big picture, they're there because they sinned and didn't listen to God and now they're acting like it's all God's problem. God would have every right, every right to say, if that's what you really think, fine. I'm going to go start over. I'm going to go, we're done. If you don't believe me, if you don't trust me, if you're not going to take me at my word, fine, we're done. It's over. He'd have every right to do that. And that's what makes his response all the more amazing. Because in so many ways, we see God's response as the giving up of his rights and the extension of his grace and his love, and his unending mercy. I mean, look, it's, it's amazing. 
He hasn't walked away from them in the middle of their doubt. He engages with them in the middle of their regret and faithlessness. He doesn't run from them. He runs to them. And, and notice what he tries to do. He, draw, he draws close to them, tries to take their, their eyes off of their pain, off of themselves, and put their vision onto him. He hasn't left them alone. He's still pursuing them to give them hope in the middle of a deep and bitter regret. And we see there's a very specific way he works in this text to give them hope. It's very specific. And it's important for us to really just dig down into the specific way that God tries to give them hope. Because it's the best way that he wants to give you hope today. And it's the best way for you to give hope to another when they need it. God is giving people hope in the place of regret through a display of his glory. First thing he shows us is his glorious power. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? God's demonstrating his incomparable glory. He is unlike anyone or anything else in all of creation. He does things that no one else is able to do. He looks at creation the way we look at a small Lego piece. You know, pick up a small Lego piece. I like to use Legos because I have a lot of them in my house. And, and you pick up a Lego, right? And you are exalted over that Lego. You, you can take it all in. It's easy to measure. It's easy to weigh. It's, it's easy to quantify and qualify. You are exalted over it. You could, you could throw it. You could destroy it. You could try to step on it, but that might hurt. Been there before. It's an amazing thing. God holds the universe like we hold a Lego piece. Think about it for a second. We stand in awe of the half dome at Yosemite, the sheer expansive stillness of the ocean as it just stretches forth in every direction, the depth of the Grand Canyon, the regularity and dependability of Old Faithful. We stand in awe of every one of those marvels and God holds them in their hand like they're a Lego. They are incredible to us, but they are so simple for him. The sheer awe of the wonders of the natural world only leaves us in greater awe of the one who made them, sustains them, and perfectly measures them. Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Scientists tell us that there are 10 billion trillion stars just in the galaxies that we're aware of. 10 billion trillion. As you go out at night and you look at each star in the sky, 
you are looking at something that God has named. We go out in the night and, and we see what appears to be anonymous star after anonymous star after anonymous star. And, you know, if you walk out at night and then, you know, you go out the next night, you probably can't even remember where the star was from the previous night. If you're lucky, you remember that I think Orion was over there somewhere. But for many of us, we just know, well, there's some stars out. I mean, if you ever go out in the, you ever go out like in, in, in a non-light polluted area where there's a lot of stars, you ever play the game where you're, I'm going to try to count them? Good luck. Good luck counting the stars in Alaska or, or in Montana. Good luck. It seems like star after star. But as you go at night and you look at those stars along with ancient Israel, you are beckoned to feel the hope of a living God who uses the example of those stars to comfort his people with hope. Not one of those stars is anonymous to the living God. Not one of those stars does he forget its name or its place or the moment he made it. When you feel forgotten, and let's be honest, for some of us, the Christmas season is a season when we feel forgotten, passed over, unimportant. And when you feel that way, the most spiritual thing you can do in Christmas is to walk outside at night and look at star after star after star and, tell, and remind yourself the truth, my daddy made those stars and my daddy named those stars. And my daddy never forgets those stars. And if he doesn't forget those stars, how much will he never forget me who am made in his image and who he came to redeem? Those stars that he knows their names actually are going to pass away. But through faith in him, I will never pass away. And he will never forget me. He hasn't, if he hasn't forgotten the stars, he will not forget you. We see his glorious power. We see his glorious wisdom. Verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The spiritual antidote to grumbling and questioning is specific, robust praise. We take our eyes off of the sorrow and we put it on the only source of hope. I mean, the Israelites are sitting there in exile. Right? And they're feeling like God has forgotten them, like he has abandoned them. And they're wondering, how did it come to this? And God, speaking through Isaiah, draws them back to his incomparable wisdom and knowledge. Again, you ever, you ever fall into one of those seasons where you really start lacking hope? And, 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 what, and what's the lie you keep hearing in your mind? Maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe he's messed up. Maybe he didn't have all the information. There's, there's no good reason why this should have turned out this way. And Isaiah 
brings us back. And I love how it I love how Isaiah doesn't bring us back to the specific situation. He brings us back to the character of God, which is part of what makes this so applicable as a strategy for us down through the ages. He brings us back to the character of God, and he beckons us to stand in awe of who God is and what he's doing. Just because something does not seem like there is any good in it or be, just because we cannot understand why a series of events have transpired, that does not mean that there is no good reason. You know, Tim Keller was talking about this. I heard last week he was uh, giving a sermon. It was really great. And he was giving a sermon at Google, which was fantastic. And he's there at Google, and he's talking to a largely unbelieving audience. And, um, and he was talking about the philosophical problem of evil. And, and even as he said, I'm going to say, this is, this is a philosophical answer to the philosophical problem of evil. I don't think this is the answer you give someone in your living room when they're bawling. I think you cry and you love them and you hug them. But, one of the, but, but the philosophical problem of evil generally goes, hey, you know, God can't be good and God can't be loving because there's nothing good about this. And if he was really good and he was really all-powerful, he never would have allowed this. I think Keller was right on the money. He said the flaw in that argument is we assume that if we can't see the good in a situation, there is no good. And that's really an exaltation of our own abilities far beyond what we're capable of. Just because we don't see the good doesn't mean that there isn't a good. Think about it. So think about it, parents. How often does the weekend roll around and you've got a game plan in mind for the day? And you're thinking, okay, we're going to do this, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. And if all that goes well, we'll get here. And you get peppered with questions from your kids nonstop. Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? Why do you want me to do this? Why, what, when, where? It's like they're little reporters, question after question after question. And your continued response is, just do what I'm asking you to do. It's all going to be okay. Just trust mom. Just trust dad. Please do what I'm asking you to do, and it's all going to be okay. It's just like, it doesn't, I mean, for them, they're just in there thinking, well, I, I, thought, I thought we were going to go get donuts, or I thought we were going to go to the park, or I thought this was going to happen. Why is, it, why is this happening, or why are we doing that? I don't understand. Like, just trust me. We have a plan. It's going to be okay. Trust me. Same thing with sports and coaching, right? Coach calls a timeout. You're watching the game. Let's assume you're watching the game from the TV. They call a timeout. How often do they call a timeout? And in that moment, you may think you know why they called a timeout, but you don't know for sure. Maybe they called a timeout because you ever have this happen? There was, there was one too many players on the field at the time. And they noticed that there was one too many players in the field uh, before the game started again. And so they want to call the timeout to get the extra player off the field so they don't get a penalty. Maybe they call the timeout because they saw a hole in the opponent's defense and they thought, i got to get these guys together so we can exploit that hole and score. They, they might have said, hey, I'm going to call a timeout because I want to ice that free thrower. I want to just give them a few more seconds of worry and anxiety and increase the chance they're going to miss that shot. They got a good reason for calling a timeout. You may have no idea what it is, but that does not mean there is not a good reason. How much more is this the case of the Lord? 
We turn from the situation causing pain and confusion and instead rest in awe in the incomparable wisdom and knowledge of the God who spoke the creation into existence, who sustains it, and who will come again to judge the living and the dead. God is the source of embody, an embodiment of justice, wisdom, and knowledge. He knows what he's doing. Deep and enduring hope does not spring from understanding what is going on around us. If your hope springs from understanding what's going on around you, it is a fickle, small hope. Deep and enduring hope comes from trusting in the character of the one who is guiding what is going on around you for his glory. That's the hope that overpowers regret. He shows it, he calls us to behold his, his power. He calls us to behold his knowledge. He calls us to behold his glorious sovereignty. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. And are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I wish I could read that verse as well as Eric Little does in Chariots of Fire. I just need, I'm sorry, I just, every time I read that verse, that's what I think of. Eric Little, Chariots of Fire. wish I could zap him in to read that verse. Think about it. Babylon was the undisputed superpower of its day. It walked into country after country and took them over taking all of the wealth and redistributing its people and possessions as it saw fit. It single-handedly defeated the superpower of the previous age, claiming its mantle of supremacy the way a new team does every year in the World Series. God is telling his people that Babylon, along with every other nation put together, is less than nothing compared to what he can do. We often lose hope when the enemy or the circumstance seems insurmountable. And God is reminding us how powerful he is. And think about recent memory. 60 years ago, I don't know that anyone would have imagined that today there would be more Christians in China than they are in the United States. But there are. 50 years ago, I don't know that anyone would have imagined that South Korea would be the second largest missionary sending country in the world soon overtake the United States. But it is. 600 years ago, I don't think anyone would have imagined that a bold, crude, biblically gifted monk would light the flame of Reformation. But he did. We lose hope when we think a promise or a dream is insurmountable. But when we look at our king and behold the fullness of his power, his wisdom, his sovereign glory, we find hope because nothing is beyond his power. The combined armies of every nuclear-powered nation in the world today is emptiness compared to the power of God. One of the greatest dangers today, I think, in being a news junkie, 
like I am, is you read the news and you lead bad headline after bad headline and this creeping cynicism enters your soul. And you walk around thinking, it's all getting worse. It's all getting worse. Everything's getting terrible. And you lose hope and strength in this mighty God who in our generation has taken situations that seem so dark, like in China and South Korea, and expanded the kingdom of God for his glory in just decades. He is sovereign over all. That is a source of hope. And so, and so you see what's happening here in Isaiah 40? God's power, God's wisdom, and God's incomparability are not abstract philosophical concepts. And shame on us if we treat them that way. God's glory is a life-changing reality. His self-presentation of his glory is meant to change our lives, stir our affections, give, give us a firm foundation upon which to march through life. Four times in this text, what does he say? Behold, behold. Four times he specifically commands us to look at him. Behold. A few short, short months ago, there was an eclipse. And a lot of you, you went outside, and, and maybe some of you, you went, and before you went outside, you went to CVS or Walgreens, and you bought the cool glasses that you could wear so you didn't burn your eye out. And then there were those of you that just said, hey, I'm, I'm going to do the, the poor man's version. I'm going to go, and I'm going to take the cereal box, and I'm going to cut out the cereal box and hope that this works. And, and you went outside, and you beheld this as they said, once-in-a-lifetime vision of the eclipse. Here God is calling you to do the same thing with him. He has given us a vision of his glory that we are able to see and stand in awe of so that our lives would change, that we would be filled with hope and overpowering hope brought about through the awe of the living God. March, April 2016 issue of Psychology Today had an article entitled, It's Not All About You, where they discuss the need we as human beings have to develop a sense of wonder. You know, you can't get away from the gospel. You can't escape biblical truth. We were made to stand in awe and wonder of something. And if we are not standing in awe and wonder, we are not healthy or whole, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. It's amazing. In this article, again, in Psychology Today, uh, therapist Robert Leahy wrote, quote, Awe is the opposite of rumination. It clears away the inner turmoil with a wave of outer immensity. A theoretical physicist wrote, quote, awe gives you an existential shock. You realize that you are hardwired to be a little selfish, but you are also dependent on something bigger than yourself. The Wharton School of Business at UPenn found that the most emailed and shared articles published by the New York Times were ones that evoked a sense of awe. Can't get away 
from the gospel. People are flocking to our national parks in record numbers over the last few years because they are realizing that we as human beings have this need for transcendence. There is actually this existential need to stand in the presence of something or someone that is greater than us and that we have more worth when we realize how small we are. This text, God is speaking to his people, Israel, and he's inviting them to find hope by standing in awe of his glory. He's beckoning us to behold him, to behold his creation in light of him, that we may experience a deep and enduring hope that springs from standing in wonder of this God who made us who came to rescue us and who promised to come and redeem us. Behold the wonder of a God who loved you enough that he left the throne room of heaven and was born of a virgin in a manger. Behold the wonder of that God living in that manger. What? Um, I can't think of how the hymn goes. What? Veiled incarnate deity, Right? Behold the wonder of this God who could perfectly unite his deity with the finiteness of his humanity so that he could be known, so that he could live the perfect, holy, righteous life we cannot live, that he might die the death we deserve to die as the representative of all who would believe. This God. Behold the wonder of this God who pursues a people walking away from him and moves heaven and earth to fulfill his promise. This is the Lord. He's saying, behold me. As you stand there in regret and shame and worry and anxiety and fear and doubt, behold me. Behold me. God is giving his people hope in the place of regret through a display of his glory He will exalt those who trust in him. Verse 29. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow tired or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increaseth strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall and exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Do you believe that promise? Is that the source of your hope this Christmas season? God is promising that if we wait for him, steadfastly hoping in his promise and power that he will exalt and strengthen us. As our bodies age, as our spirits are discouraged, he calls us to wait and trust in him. Are you ready to do that? Because, you know, waiting on God is not simply a matter of passing time. Waiting on God is not saying, well, we made it through another day. 
Oh, I just got to get through this afternoon. I'm waiting on God. It's not really waiting on God. As one theologian put it, waiting on God is, quote, to live in confident expectation of his action on our behalf. That's what it looks like to wait on God. It's a hope and a trust that differs from Abraham when he ran ahead and tried to fulfill God's promise on his own. It's a hope and a trust that enables us to rest in his grace poured out at the cross in response to our sin. It's a hope and a trust that is confident in the present because it believes God's promise for the future. This world is not our home. We are exiles. We have hope because we know that our king came in the manger. And we know he's coming again. He will bless us with the greatest longing of our hearts if we will trust in him. Whether your body is bent over in physical pain or emotional regret, have hope. Because those who wait on the Lord will rise up with the wings of eagles and they will soar on the thermals and they will see the expanse of his glory with nothing but praise for his glorious name. Let's pray. Living, loving, holy God, we praise you for you are a mighty God, a steadfast king, everlasting father, prince of peace, Holy, holy, holy is your name. And Lord, we confess our need for you. And God, we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we would see your glory. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to continue through this season of longing, this season of Advent, season of busyness, with a growing hope in our hearts through a rest in your glory. Father, as we reflect on you, our coming king, who came and was born, may we stand in awe of that baby born in Bethlehem. And when we praise you, that you, the infinite God, have come near, that our lives may be saved, rescued, and transformed for your glory. Fill us with a strong and a mighty hope that this very Christmas season will call us to, uh, cause others to ask us where it comes from. In Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen. Stand together and be dismissed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you in favor and give you peace. Amen.